And my prayer right now is that our hearts and our minds are prepared to truly grasp and truly wrap our minds around the nature of the scriptures. We've been in the book of Zechariah. The word, the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. And in a time when God's people, the nation of Israel, might have contemplated and wondered, is God for us? Has he abandoned us? Does he actually recall what he's said to us, what he's guaranteed to us? Or has the plan changed? In one night, in a single evening, so to speak, God unveils a series of eight visions, spectacular, all of them, absolutely phenomenal, to assure and to depict the depth and glory and drama and epicness that he does remember. He hasn't forgotten anything. And in fact, for all of us here, often in our shallow reading of Scripture, God remembers things we never even knew he promised. That is how far his memory goes. And so God systematically lays out in visions that he remembers his plan. He remembers his plan specifically for the nations, the whole world. He remembers his plan relative to his promises to Israel. And what he remembers most of all and most central in all of these visions is the Messiah. In fact, if you actually lay out the visions, there are eight of them, and there are eight for a reason. They are arranged in what we call a chiasm, also known kind of as a sandwich structure. And just as a sandwich has two pieces of bread on the outside, so the beginning and the ending of these visions the first one and the last one, they mirror each other. And likewise, the second one mirrors the second to last one. And the third mirrors the third to last one. And just like with a sandwich, whenever you go to a restaurant or a, or a fast food place, you don't name the sandwich by the bread. You don't go to Subway and say, give me a wheat bread sandwich. They, they won't know what to do with you. You name the sandwich by what is in the center. You name the sandwich which by which is in the midst of it. And in the same way, in these visions, what is most important, what is most central, is what is at the center of these visions. That is what is most important. And as you go through each of these visions, visions four and five, what are in the middle of these eight visions is a vision about the Messiah. The vision is that the Messiah is the one who cleanses. That's what we see in Zechariah chapter 3. He's the one who intercedes for his people Israel. He's the one who makes them worthy to worship God as God had promised them to do in the past. And we need the Messiah to transform, to forgive, to cleanse, to atone for us. And likewise, in chapter 4, you have a picture of a lampstand. And that is a striking image for any Israelite and anyone who knows their Bible because the lampstand is the testimony of this. The world can be a dark place. After the fall, the world was plunged into darkness, but there is this reality. The light of God has never gone out in this world. It resolved and it, res it is remaining that God's light will shine, and ultimately it is standing for an agenda that one day light will win. And light will overcome the darkness, and light will conquer all, such that the light of God and his glory will fill the earth, and there will be no competitor, there will be no darkness, there will be no rival to the glory of God, not even the sun, moon, and stars will be able to rival the Lord Jesus Christ, because his glory will be supreme. That is what the light 
of the lampstand symbolizes. And the only light that can fulfill such a lampstand as the symbolism of Zechariah 4 shows is the Lord Jesus Christ because the lampstand is made with human hands. It is not operated by human hands. It is not sustained by human mechanisms. It is only sustained by itself, in and of itself, and that is only the light of Christ. That is only supernatural, and that is who Christ is. And how do we know that God in Christ is driving this. Zechariah says something so encouraging in Zechariah 4. He reminds us, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. We remember these words. And we remember these words because Zerubbabel, the individual in Zechariah's day, a leader in Zechariah's day, he had challenges that he faced. But the reminder was this, that God is so present even in that time that Zerubbabel will finish his work on the temple. He will complete what God had for him. And that is a demonstration that God isn't just present in the future. He's with us now. He's with us now. And here is the deal for us. You can go to Israel, and you should go to Israel, or at least see pictures of Israel if you don't see anything else. And you will know, and you will observe that that temple, it was done. That's an irrefutable fact. That is an absolute truth of history. It was done. Don't forget what it testifies. It testifies that God was with his people. That's irrefutable. And because he is with his people then, and the light of that lampstand continued to shine then, we know it will shine all the way to the day when light wins over darkness. That's the message of Zechariah 4. And so you have these promises, promises about the plan of God, promises about the nations, promises about Israel, and they all hinge on the one who mediates the very presence and glory of God, the one who purifies his people. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the center of these vengeance. He is the hinge point, the instrument by which all of the promises of God are yes and amen. Sometimes people wonder, is the Old Testament really focused on Christ. And sometimes people want to read Christ into the Old Testament. They want to make every rock and every stone and every nail and every scarf about him. Look, rocks can be about rocks and scarves can be about scarves. You don't need to read him in. You just need to find him where he is. And there's plenty of times that the Old Testament has him present. And in fact, if you want to see how central he is, think about Zechariah's logic. He says he's at the center of all the visions. You can't get more center than the center. And therefore, the Old Testament has had a focus on Christ. The Old Testament always knew the Messiah mattered, that he was the foundation for everything, and everything stands and falls on him. And so in eight visions, one night, Zechariah beholds all of this. And where we are at right now is we have kind of crested over the halfway point. The halfway point of all of these visions. We are in vision number six, the third to last vision. The third to last vision. This is found in Zechariah chapter five. Zechariah chapter five. And just like we said that each vision has a parallel. Each vision has a partner. Well, we have the third to last vision here, which matches the third vision that was originally given. And the third vision that was originally given was concerning God's promises about the nation of Israel, concerning God's promises that one day he would dwell amongst his people in a 
wall of fire. That's how glorious it would be. And so on one hand, in the third vision, you have all of God's blessings, all of these promises that God does beyond what we ask or think. But there's a flip side to that. There's another side to the coin of that. If we talk about blessing in the third vision, in the third to last vision, we have the other side of the coin, which is judgment, which is judgment. And that is what we are talking about this morning because the word of God demands it, because Zechariah's vision demands it. We are talking about God's judgment. We are talking accountability. We are talking about holiness. We are talking about wrath. And whenever you talk about these things, there are two, at least, major responses. Two major responses that people have when we mention the notion of judgment. And one of those responses, shall we say, is this. People are apprehensive. People are apprehensive. When when you say judgment, immediately, some people, even in here, might kind of sigh and think, oh, no. Not this. We love a God who's nice. We love a God who's loving. We want God to be a friend to all and an enemy to no one, especially in our culture. And I understand that. I understand this deep desire to make sure that God, he's just the lovable guy. He's a good God. He's a nice God, a friendly one. In fact, it's even reinforced in Sunday school. What kind of stickers do they give out from Oriental Trading Company? It says this, (laughs) smile, Jesus loves you with a happy face, a nice sticker, big smile on the sticker. No one produces stickers with Mr. Yuck on it, poison control. And it says, this is you after the wrath of God. (laughs) You don't hand those stickers out because they don't even make those stickers. And so from a young age, we've cultivated our mentality that what is beautiful about God and what is necessary about God and what you want God to be and what you appreciate about him is that he's nice and that he's generous and that he's merciful and that he's loving. And that is true, but that is not all that is God. And we need to remember that even in a passage like Exodus 34, which talks about how God is full of loving kindness and truth and compassionate and merciful. It says these very words in that text, but will not acquit the wicked. He will not do that. He is just. He is wrathful. Psalm 7, he is wrathful and angry against the wicked every day. Yes, it is true that he is the friend of sinners, but he is also the one who executes wrath against the unjust. Yes, he is love. In fact, that's why he's wrathful. Think about the parable in Matthew chapter 22, which discusses the marriage supper of a father for his son. The father invites all of these people to come to that wedding ceremony, but people come up with excuses why they don't want to come. What does the father do in that parable? Does he say to those people, well, that's all right. You rejected my invitation and you insulted my son. No big deal. We're still friends, right? I'm a loving father. The father takes vengeance. And why does Jesus tell that parable in the context that he does after his triumphal entry? It's obvious. His point is this. I have a father 
You want to know why wrath must be? You want to know why God the Father will send people to hell? It is because of love. He loves his son. And he will never allow his son to be so insulted because he has perfect love to him. And he always has. That is what is going on in Matthew 22. Love and wrath, they are not mutually exclusive or opposites. They are so complementary that one drives the other, that one is united with the other. Lamentations 2 verse 4, God says this. He says, Israel, I am your enemy. I am your enemy. Yahweh is the enemy before them. God does have wrath. God is not a victim of sin. He's the judge of it. And all that glorifies God. And so to the apprehensive, sometimes we need to remember, even though we may be uncomfortable, even though we may think that judgment could be a letdown, it is not. And we need this text to remind us of these things. But there is another kind of person. There is another kind of individual that reacts when we talk about judgment. And if one person is apprehensive, this person, and I was trying to think of an an A that would be appropriate, and perhaps there's one of two terms, this person is the angry person or the person in anguish. And what I mean by this is that this person is constantly frustrated by the world. Because they're so frustrated that justice is not happening, they just start to wonder, will the God of justice ever act? This is the person who watches the news, and they see the terrible things that happen, and it drives them crazy. They'll react and say, that's not fair, that's not right, that's not just. And then they'll hold up an article, email it to you, talk about it with you, and they say, do you believe this? And when people ask me that, I say, well, yeah, it happened. Of course I believe it. It it, it existed. And they say, no, 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 you don't get it. Do you believe people can do that? I say, yeah. I have a very high view of human depravity. (laughs) Of course they can do that. Of course they would do that. What else would you expect? You know, when something good happens, now that's something crazy to celebrate. How could that ever happen in light of human depravity? But seriously, when we see atrocities, when we see persecution, when we see uncontainable wickedness and unconscionable evil, we with the psalmist in Psalm 13, we with Habakkuk in Habakkuk 1, we with Micah and the prophets and Isaiah and Jeremiah, we with the Thessalonian believers and Paul who were awaiting the judgment to come, or the Roman believers in Romans 16, where Paul assures them that God will trample over Satan soon, we with the saints in Revelation 6, we are all crying out the same thing. How long? How long, Lord? You have to deal with this. You intervene. We are desperate for God to do something. Sometimes in evangelism, the skeptic comes up and says, well, if God was really real, well, why didn't he just kill me? And in our flesh, we sometimes pray, go ahead. (laughs) Just do it. That'll teach him. We want justice. We want justice. And so you have two people. You have the apprehensive person when they say judgment. They're so hesitant because they can't imagine that anything good could come out from judgment. And then you have the angry person, or you have the person in anguish 
Because they see this world and they think there is only good for the wicked in this world now. They don't ever get what they deserve. And Zechariah 5 speaks to both kinds of people. Zechariah 5 is meant to give comfort to Israel. Whether they were apprehensive and they didn't want to believe that God would judge, Zechariah 5 says, God judges. And good comes from this. And he will purify you. But you need to remember the nature of God and the nature of his word. And to those who were upset because they saw their fellow Israelites and they saw their wickedness and they were so frustrated at how they were behaving, God says this, and I will deal. Do not be frustrated. Judgment is with the Lord. His word will win. His word will rule. He will execute his wrath in his good timing. He has a plan. He has not forgotten. Yahweh remembers. And so we need this text because we're not much different from Israel. Those who are apprehensive or those who are angry or in anguish, we need this text. And hopefully in it all, as we think about the purging justice of God that eradicates sinners or the purifying judgment of God that refines sin out of our lives, we remember this in the middle of it all, that this is the nature of God's word. This is the standard of his word. And hopefully, Lord willing, as every day, when we open up his word, when we meditate upon it, when we read it, when we peruse it, when we hear about it, we remember and recall the nature of the scriptures. We don't just view this as a book. We don't just view the reading of his word as something that we did and we can check it off. We remember this is the flying scroll of God. This is the word that moves. This is the word that is active. This is the word that purges. This is the word that purifies. And we handle it that way. That's what Zechariah was impressing upon all God's people, past and present. And so with that, Zechariah 5, 1 through 4, there are three aspects of judgment for us to understand. Three aspects of judgment. And here's the first one found in the first two verses. Here's the first aspect found in the first two verses, and that is the criterion of judgment. The criterion of judgment. There is a lot happening here. Zechariah, he returns and lifts up eyes, and he sees. And this is indicative of a new vision. And in fact, if we want to be technical, it is indicative of the fact that Zechariah now has moved out of the centerfold of his visions about the Messiah, and now back to kind of the outskirts of his vision, this one concerning Israel. And what he beholds, fundamentally, verse 1 makes it absolutely clear, he sees a flying scroll. A scroll, as you know, are two sticks of wood, so to speak, with a kind of paper or parchment rolled around them. And the major operation, the major usage of a scroll in the scriptures particularly is for the word of God. And so Zechariah sees a flying Bible. We remember certain metaphors, certain descriptions of scripture. They're clear to us. They tell us the nature of the word of God. For example, Hebrews 4, God's word is sharper than any two-edged 
We understand that. We understand the power of the word of God, that it can pierce your heart. It can judge you. It can convict you. It can condemn you. It can kill you. We understand that reality. We understand Psalm 119, that God's word is a what to our feet? A lamp to our feet. We understand that. We understand that the word of God sheds light on our life that it allows us to see things clearly, to distinguish between danger and safety. That's why in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says that you cling to the word of God like light shining in the darkness. This is your lifeline. This is your security. You don't make a step without the light of the word of God. We understand that. Well, just like you understand the metaphor of a sword, and just like you understand the metaphor of a lamp, you need to understand the word of God flies. The word of God flies. That's another metaphor. And what it reminds us is that the word of God is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. Back in those days, everything on war was done on the ground. They didn't have aeroplanes. They might have had eagles and stuff and and birds that could fight a little bit, but they, they predominantly fought on the ground. And therefore, when something is flying There's nothing to impede it. It is powerful. It is unstoppable. And it has reach. Back then, just like even now, when people ask about your travel plans, what do they ask? Oh, are you flying there? Are you driving? Because driving would be crazy. Why? Because if it's far away, there's only one way to get there. And it's not by boat, and it's not by train. It's by airplane. People understand that. This scroll is flying because it has infinite reach. It'll go to the ends of the earth. It'll go there. It is unstoppable. And it is flying because of its rapid speed. Its rapid speed as it advances the plan of God. Yahweh remembers. This scroll is flying to accomplish everything that God wants to do, that God has purposed to do. He is moving his plan forward. It is unstoppable, and it will reach anywhere that God wants it to reach and implement in any way you can because you cannot oppose it. You cannot prevent it from happening. You cannot forestall it. It's an air attack. God's word is never stagnant. God's word is never stagnant. It always drives in our lives, things personal, and it always drives his plan. Now, Zechariah sees this flying scroll, and he understands God is active, and he's swift, and he's fast. And here, Zechariah sees a scroll, and it stands, like I mentioned before, in complete contrast to what we saw before. The parallel vision to Zechariah 5 is at chapter 2, the third vision. This one's the third to last one, so it goes back to the third vision. And in that vision, God had a totally different picture. There are no scrolls in that picture. The picture was Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and it will have no walls. And it'll be one rolling city, and God's glory will be in the midst, and God's glory will be a wall of fire all around it, and all the people will rejoice, and they'll take off their iniquity. They will run back to God. They will separate from Babylon spiritually and physically. It'll be amazing. And here, in contrast to a wall of fire, the glory of God, a massive Jerusalem, you got a flying scroll. That's a difference. That's a different picture. And it already hints at this, that yes, there are great promises that God has, glorious things that await his people, but there's another side. 
There's a scroll. There's a standard. There's the word of God. And you can't have one without the other. You can't have one without the other. There is an accountability. There is a criteria for all of this. And the rest of verse 2 confirms it. Then he said to me, what are you seeing? And I said, I see a flying scroll. We got that part. And then he talks about how it's 20 cubits by 10 cubits. He gives the dimensions. Of course, he supernaturally knows that. Not many people probably could eyeball a scroll and say, I think it's this many feet, you know. 20 by 10 cubits is about 30 feet by 15 feet, if you want some dimensions. And there are some initial implications of the dimensions of the scroll. For one, most likely the scroll then is rolled open. It's going to be very difficult to keep the thing shut and have it be the dimensions and the ratios that it is. And that's important because what it reminds us is this. Sometimes we read our Bibles, and then what do we do after we read it? We close it. And the moment you close it, out of sight, out of mind. Here's what God says. My scroll is always open. It's never out of my mind. God's word is active. God's word is open. And everything in it is activated. That's what we have to remember. You may close your Bible, God does not. You may shut your mind off from the scriptures, God does not. And he expects that you shouldn't either. Then on top of that, not only is it unrolled, the scroll, and therefore open, it's big. This is not your normal size scroll. If you wonder if people in the time of Christ or in the time of Zechariah had scrolls that were 30 feet by 15 feet, the answer is no. That would be exorbitant. I mean, for one, that would be exorbitantly expensive already. A scroll, even of the book of Romans, is estimated to be approximately $900,000 to produce in the ancient times. What would you do with a billboard-sized scroll? Speaking of which, this is a billboard-sized scroll, and that's why it's important, because it's visible. It's visible. There will be a day when God judges the earth, and there will be no question what is happening. It'll be so clear. It'll be so obvious. And everyone will know that the words of the word of God open before the mind of God, active in the heart of God, will be visibly and unquestionably carried out. No one will be mystified at what is happening. The scroll is open. The scroll is visible. No one, and particularly none of us here, could ever say to God, but you never told me. We all know. We all know. And therefore, we all know better than to do the sins that we do. But all of that, all of those observations lead to this crucial one. Why 20 cubits by 10? It's not just that the scroll is open. It's not just that it's highly visible. 20 cubits by 10 is no accident. There are no accidents in the scripture, and this detail matters because 20 cubits by 10 cubits is the exact dimensions. They are the exact dimensions of the porch. They are the exact dimensions of the porch leading into the millennial temple that Ezekiel describes. It is the entranceway to the Holy of Holies, so to speak, the building that contains the Holy of Holies. And here is the reminder. Here is the reminder, and it truly is a double-edged sword. 
it's a reminder that this, this is the case. Yes, did God promise that Israel will dwell with him? Yes. Did God promise that his glory will dwell with them? Yes. Did God promise that his glory will be in the midst of them, dwelling in a millennial temple, full of beauty, full of splendor, full of richness, full of communion? Yes. Did God promise that he would get his people there? Yes. Did God promise that he would fellowship with them and that they could be a part of him and that they would call him my God and he would call them my people? Yes. But there is an entry point to get there. There is a standard to get in. There, just like there's an entrance to the temple, just like there's a porch before you can get into the holy place and the holy of holies, there is an entry point to enter the promises of God, and that is the word of God. That is satisfying the holiness of God. You see, a problem that Israel can have, and it's a problem that any person can have of the people of God is simply this, that we hear the promises and we love those promises and we're saved by grace unto those promises. And so then we assume wrongfully that you can just act any way you want and you'll get them. And that it doesn't matter what you do from this point forward. You're just gonna get the promises anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And holiness isn't necessary. And working on your life and refining it for the glory of God and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, that's optional. That's not part of the standard. You'll get in no matter what, and so you can do whatever you want. That can often be our, be our expectation. And God says this, before you get into the temple, before you partake of all that glory and all those promises, there's an entry point, and I hold you accountable, and not everyone gets in. It is dependent upon you keeping the word of God. That's what you have to remember. Holiness matters. Now, let's be clear, and I want to be very, very clear. Yes, absolutely, salvation is by grace alone. That has always been the case throughout the scriptures, not just in the New Testament with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Amen to that. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, though long before Ephesians was written, God said, I will circumcise your heart. That's grace. That's God alone doing it. Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37, God describes how he will cleanse Israel and he will cleanse them, he says, and he will change their heart of stone. By the way, if you have a heart of stone, you're dead. If I ripped out your heart and put a rock in there, you're dead. So people in Israel, they're dead. And what does God do? He makes them alive. It's always been, always by grace. It's never been work salvation, ever or ever or ever or ever. And this reality is carried from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Hebrews 7, he reminds us that God in Christ, Christ is the one who mediates for us, stands to intercede for us. He's the one who died for us once and for all. Yes, absolutely, it is by grace alone. No human effort, no human merit, no accomplishment of the flesh at all in any way secures the promises of God. Absolutely not. But here's what we need to remember. Since it is by God's grace, there is a standard. Since it is by God's grace, there is a standard. If and since God's power is so mightily working, if and since he regenerates your heart, if and since he changes your soul, if and since you are born again, made new unto life, 
then what do you expect him to do? Do you just expect his work to piddle out and fail? Or do you expect it to actually change you so radically you will be a holy people because he made you that way? He remade you that way. That's what we see over and over. Zechariah 4 even reminds us of that. Not by might, but by my spirit. God changes us. 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is what? Sufficient. We know that. We know that. We understand that God changes people. He regenerates the heart, and that changes everything. It reminds me of tiger moms. You say, what is a tiger mom? A tiger mom is a label that they give to Asian mothers. And you might ask me, do you have a tiger mom? No, I never did. And that's not just because my mother's here and I'm saying that to be nice. (laughs) I never had a tiger mom. But I knew tiger moms. I knew of these people. They were all around us. The tiger mom, as the joke goes is the person that makes sure that by the age of seven, their child has played in Carnegie Hall. By the age of 13, they've graduated with a doctorate. And then by the age of 18, they go off to another university to finish their third one. This is the nature of a tiger mom that pushes and pushes and pushes. And if you can't do calculus by six, you're a failure. You need to learn minimum a couple instruments to be normal and have one doctorate, and then you're ready to join the family. That is a tiger mom. And we may tease about this a little bit because we think, what kind of mother would push their child so hard? Are they just using this child? Do they not believe in this child? Actually, as many have observed, it's because tiger moms believe in their children so much that they drive them. Because they believe. <laughs> this isn't the point of the sermon. <laughs> because you know what your child can do, so you actually have a standard. Often in our culture, it's with athletics. Why does the coach push you hard? Because he knows you can do it. If he didn't believe that you could do it, he'd kick you out of the team. That would be the simple solution. Less frustration for him and better for the team. Why does God have a standard? It's not because you earn your way. It's because God knows what he can do in you. That is why he has a standard. And so here in Zechariah 5, God says, before you enter the temple, before you partake in all those promises, don't forget this, there's a scroll the size of the porch, and it's a billboard announcing to you, you want the promises, you gotta be the right people. God will make you that way. God will make you that way, but that for that very reason, you need to be that way. You can't forget that. Just because we've been saved does not allow us or give us the excuse or the freedom to live any way we want. There is the word of God. It is the gatekeeper. And every time we open it, and every time we think of God's promises, we remember, are you holy to get there? And the answer is, when we are holy enough to get there, as the song sings, truly reflecting on what Paul has said, 
it's not because of me, but Christ in me. That's the only reason why. And for that very reason, because we know such as these belong to the kingdom of heaven. Now, that being said, there's another side. I said this was a two-edged sword, and I've talked about one edge, which is our accountability to the scriptures, and that there is a standard. But here's what everyone in Zechariah's day would have simultaneously understood. You've got a billboard, a scroll that's the size of the porch of the entrance to the temple. And what would have been affirmed at that moment is this. There is a way forward. There is a way into the temple. That God's presence is not lost. That the entrance to fellowship that's so sweet that what only for the Israelites, the high priest, once a year could have, you can have it. You can have it for yourself. God was saying that to his people. The flying scroll means, yes, there's a standard to get in. But on the other hand, you can get in. You can get in. And that's the hope that God's people have. You could think of it simply this way. The word of God the Word of God will do one of two things in our lives. It'll either purge people who are not saved. That's the warning. It'll purge people out because it's the standard of God. And if you're not holy and he hasn't saved you, there's no way you're entering in. It'll purge you out. That's what the Word of God will do because it's an unbending and unrelenting standard. Or... Or, here's the second thing it'll do. It'll purify you to make you worthy of its standard. All by the grace of God, not by yourself at all, so that you will enter in one day. And the purifying work of the word is our hope. It is our hope. There's a criteria of judgment. It's flying very high in Zechariah's vision. It is the word of God, and it'll either purge out the sinner or purify the saint. Let us never forget that. Well, there's a second aspect to the judgment of God. It's not just the criteria of judgment. It's the completeness of judgment, the completeness of judgment. Here you have this flying scroll. It exudes forcefulness, effectiveness, and reach. And someone might wonder, how thorough will this judgment be? How exhaustive will it go? How far will things proceed? And so in verse 3, Zechariah's vision revealed that this judgment will be complete. Look at how complete it is. Verse 3, then he said to me, this is the curse. Whenever you have the language of curse, you are dealing with punishment. And here it is God's massive punishment against disobedience. The specific word here for curse actually denotes what happens when you break an oath. What happens when you break a commitment? And we need to remember that when we are in a relationship with God, when we came to Christ, we are under his lordship entailed in that. And we have made a commitment. We have made a commitment to scripture. And so God is reminding his people who are also under covenant, who are also under treaty obligation, you violate this, you are cursed. You violate what you promised to do, you are cursed. It is a reminder, and this is so important, when you read the Bible, it's not suggestions. When you read the Bible, it's not just a nice book of ideas that you can entertain. 
When you read the Bible, it's not just for intellectual stimulation or emotional stimulant. This is what you've committed your soul to do before God. And when we don't do it, he is holy and he will take action. God's word is not inert. It is not up for discussion. It is only up for obedience. That is what we must remember. And God says, this is the curse. This will be exacted against anyone who breaks the oath of committing to the word of God and submitting to it. And it's not just curse, it's comprehensive. Notice the text. It goes out upon what? The face of all the earth. The face of the entire land. That's the entire land of Israel. Yea, verily, even the whole world, as we will see in the end. And you say, well, why does that matter? Well, back in the day, sometimes when God judged, he only judged part of the land. We see that in the book of Judges, that there were selective judges over selective geographical regions because they were only dealing with part of the land, part of the earth, part of the country at a time. And it's for this very reason, when we understand that sometimes God does judge locally, that we understand when he judges globally, like with the flood. Because if you think about it, if you were Noah and God said, in 120 years, I'm going to flood the local region around you, I wouldn't build an ark. I just walk. (laughs) If it's a local flood and I got 120 years, I don't care how bad the traffic is. I think I can walk it out. I think I can exit. But you couldn't this time. There's no escaping it because his judgment back then would flood the whole earth. Everything covered up to the mountains. And what God says here is, when I exact judgment from my word, it's going on the whole world. You think you can escape? You think you can just go to one region, one geographical feature like a mountain or a valley or a cave and, and, and avoid this? Not going to happen. It'll touch every single place. You can't escape. You cannot avoid this. It's comprehensive. It's also uncompromising. It's also uncompromising. You may see in the text that it goes not only across the whole earth, the whole land, but that's because the one who steals, they'll be purged by one side of this document, and the one who swears, implied falsely, will be purged by the other side of the document. What is this talking about? Well, when you talk about stealing and when you talk about swearing, those are two commandments of the ten commandments. In fact, if you chop the Ten Commandments in half, five and five, each of these commandments is number three of the five. What is this a reminder of? God will hold you to both sets of the Ten Commandments, five and five. God will hold you to all of the Ten Commandments because it's in the center of it all. And speaking of being in the center of it all, you could also think of it this way. Sometimes in academic papers, student papers, preaching even, we might put our weakest point in the middle. Why? Because we want people to forget it. It's weak. And so you just slip it in the middle, and everything is circulating around it. And therefore, people just overlook what you said. It gets missing in the details. It's the same thing that happens when you sign the terms and conditions on anything now. You just scroll through, and at first you can read the words of the terms and conditions, like the phrase terms and condition, but you've scrolled so fast that by the middle it's just one big blow yet. The details that you ignored, the ideas 
and the precision that you just blitzed through. Sometimes when we read our Bibles, we gloss over many, many things. We don't pay attention to the details. But here's what God reminds us about his word. I hold you to every word of it. And at this moment, when we could start to feel overwhelmed, there's a lot of words in the Bible. There's a lot of detail here, and we could be tempted to despair. Now you see why grace is so beautiful. Because now you know how much and what you, at the bare minimum, deserve. And what God in his mercy doesn't give you, and in his grace gives you instead. That is what we need to remember. But the standard does not change. God says, I'll hold you to the Ten Commandments, so to speak, to Israel. I'll hold you to the beginning and to the end. I'll hold you to both sides of the law. I'll hold you to every single detail within, and I will execute. It will be an uncompromising judgment. It will be a comprehensive judgment. It will be a judgment of curse, and it will be a judgment of curse that crushes you. Notice the language in verse 3. It says, you will be purged. What does purged mean? It means, ironically, to be made clean. You say, wait, but Clean is good. Clean is good unless you're the dirt. (laughs) And you're wiped off. How do you get a dish clean? You get rid of all the dirt. And God says, if you're the sinner, you're the dirt. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to wipe you out so that you're not there anymore. You're not connected with the people of God. You're not present any longer you're gone. That's a crushing judgment. That's a crushing judgment. Here's what we should recall then. Here's what we should recall. Every time we open our Bibles, this is not just some exercise to to think about some really nifty thoughts that really encourage our hearts. That may happen, but we're accountable to this book. We are accountable to this book, and we can't escape that accountability. And that accountability is for every single detail of it. That's what we need to remember. That's what we have to know when we come to this book is the weight of that kind of accountability. Yes, you might say, but this is about the Old Testament law. You're right, and we're not under the Old Testament law. That's true. We are not under the regulations and rules of it. That's absolutely a fact. And you might say, yeah, and so there's a lot of Old Testament laws that don't dictate exactly what we do in our lives, from eating shrimp to eating bacon to the clothes that we wear to tattoos or the like. All of that is true. Yes, that is a fact, and we understand that. Nevertheless, the law was always a teacher. And it taught us, through those things, eternal truth that never changes. And those eternal truths, those eternal truths, they never change. And God says, every detail of those eternal truths, they're always the same. And I hold you accountable to it all. God's judgment is complete. And though we might say, that's hard and should make us tremble before God's word, and that's true, there's comfort in this. And you say, comfort? How can there be comfort in any of this? Notice two things. Did you see in the text, it says, then he said to me, this is the curse, and it says something like this, that goes forth, yes? That goes forth. Notice that term goes forth, verse 5, or even verse 4, I will make it go forth. 
verse 5. Then the angel went forth. Then in verse 9, it talks about how the two angels, these two storks, carry the ephah, and it goes forth. It even goes forth to the land of Shinar. That's Babylon. What is it? What's happening here? God is going forth. God's curse is going forth. It is advancing his plan. In fact, there's another thing to note along that line. Look at verse 3 again of chapter 5. Did you notice how it talks about how this scroll, this flying billboard, is written on one side and is written on the other side? That's important for a reason that we'll talk about later, but initially you need to remember this. The Ten Commandments that Moses gave, they were written on both sides. This is a covenant document. This is a covenant document, and God is saying this. Everything that I promised, everything that I signed off on, everything that I wrote about in my plan, everything that I agreed on in this treaty, I'm making it go forward. I'm making it go forward. I'm advancing it all. And here we are, and we know the weightiness of God's word, and we know how exhaustive it can be and extensive it can be in the accountability of our lives. But at the same time, so extensive it will be to accomplish God's plan. Sometimes we look at the world around us, and these are particularly when we're in English reading the news, and we just think, how can someone clean all of this up? Remember the word of God. Remember how stringent a standard it is, even in our lives. That's what God will do when he goes forth in the end. He will clean it all up to that standard. That's comfort. That's encouraging. You could think of it this way. First Peter 4 says this, if judgment begins with the house of God, and it does, then what is it for the unbeliever? We know. We know God will make it all right. And that is because of the comprehensive judgment, the comprehensive standard of his word. If he's cleaning up our lives like that and we're accountable like that in that way, then you know what he will do to the whole world in the end. It will be made right. Well, the final point, we've talked about the criteria of judgment. We've talked about how it's comprehensive. Now let's talk about how it's certain. Certain, verse 4. Verse 4. Sometimes here you, you hear these weighty ideas of such massive judgment, such massive accountability, purifying and purging, and you wonder, is this really going to happen? Verse 4. Sometimes people say it this way. If, you, if, you can't, if somebody else can't do it right, sometimes you just have to do it yourself. And God says, I will. Verse 4, notice, I will cause it to go forth. The scroll is going forth. It's a flying scroll. But who's the one driving it? Who's the one flying it? Who's the one who makes sure it stays on course and does everything that it's supposed to do? God. The scroll is not on autopilot. God is the pilot. And therefore, you know, everything he's just said is for sure. It is backed by divine guarantee, and it is worthwhile to briefly think about who is the one speaking here. Notice it says, declares Yahweh of hosts. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when we think about our accountability, it is to Yahweh of hosts, the one who commands heaven and earth. You want to know the raw power of God? Yes, he's omnipotent, and our minds can't get around that. Here's something you can get around. He commands the entire angelic host of the thief in the house of the one 
who swears, the stealer and the swearer, it'll go there. God will hold people accountable exactly the way he said, to the very degree that he said he would. And not only that, the destruction will be total. That's how certain it is. Why? Because notice the language here. It is that the curse will not only go into their house, the curse will go and lodge there for the night. That's what it says in the text. Do you see it? It will lodge there. And you say, why does it need to lodge there? Because sometimes, I'm very, very, very guilty of this, we see a problem in our homes, and we just hope it goes away. You see a bug on the ground, you think, I don't want to kill that bug. Let's just see if it walks out on its own, out of the house. We just hope things go away. And God says, this curse is not going away going to stay the night. It's going to stay there. It's going to reside there. And that means it's going to destroy everything. It says this, it will consume its, that's the houses, wood and stone. Houses back then are made of wood and stone. We might know termites, they eat wood, and that means the house is gone. But this is worse than any termite because termites generally don't eat rocks. This one, this curse, does until there's no house remaining. And here is the message. You want to know how certain God's judgment will be? It'll be simple. What will be left of the wicked? Nothing. You say, well, yeah, because they're dead. No, no, no. Not just that they're dead. There's nothing. There's no evidence that they ever existed. That will be how thorough God's judgment will be. Right now, and you know, these angry people, sometimes when we get angry and in anguish, we think it's only good that happens to the wicked. Well, in the future day, there will be no good for the wicked. There will be no evidence that it existed whatsoever. That's how thorough God will eradicate sin and wickedness from this world. He will make it as pure as his word. That's what we need to understand. But there's another side to this. There's another side to this. For those who wonder, yeah, okay, the angry person, the person in anguish, you know, will the wicked just keep prospering? The answer is no, we understand. But there's the person who's apprehensive, and they wonder, can any good come out of this at all? Have you, have you noticed, it's so odd in this text, that the curse goes not just against the person, not just against their stuff, but it says that it lodges in their house. And then it repeats it over and over again. It goes into their house. It goes in the house of this one. It goes in the house of that one. It lodges in the midst of his house. Yes, we know. We know. You could have just said it lodges there. That would have been a simple way to say it, but it just keeps repeating house over and over and over and over again. Why the emphasis on house? Because in the time of Zechariah and Haggai, God talked about a house a lot. Whose house? His house. He said, Israel, build my house. Israel, how dare you look and care about your house when my house lies in ruins? Why is he talking about house here? Simple, because he says, I will tear down their house so that there will only be what? One house that remains. That's God's house. And what God is doing here is saying, all competitors, all rivals, all things that would exalt themselves against the house of God, they will be crushed to the point where there is no remnant of them all so that there will only be one house that people cares about, and that is the house of Yahweh. 
the house where all will go to worship and commune and fellowship with him forever, where his glory will emanate from as the epicenter of this entire world. That is what all of this is paving the way for. To get the one central house, you have to tear down everyone else's what? House. That is what God is saying here. And to the person who says, I can't see anything good coming out of judgment, this is what we have to realize. And this is Zechariah's point. The highest good comes out of God's judgment. The highest good comes out of God's judgment because he tears down the false homes to bring up the one true home, the one that we always wanted and needed. That is what is taking place. That's the certainty. That's what God's judgment divinely authorized guarantees. Now you might say, well, this is, this is great. I mean, the word of God tears down, brings up one home, accomplishes everything in the covenant. It's flying, it's active, it's got reach, but it's just a scroll. I mean, can scrolls really do that? Is God going to change his mind about this? Is this some kind of advanced metaphor? Well, surely the scroll does remind us of the word of God, but at the same time, let me put it this way. This is no metaphor. And the plan of God has not changed. Say, well, really? Can a scroll do that? Think in the book of Revelation. There is a scroll. Revelation chapter 5. No one can open its seals. And think about this scroll with me very carefully because it should be deja vu. It should be a parallel in your mind. In Zechariah 5, you have a scroll. In Revelation 5, you have a scroll. In Zechariah 5, it says this, the scroll is written on front and back. Revelation 5, it says what? The scroll is written on what? Front and back. In Zechariah 5, this is a scroll of the word of God and judgment. In Revelation 5 and following, what happens when they open up the scroll? Judgment. In Zechariah 5, it says this judgment will ultimately go out, go out, go out, go out, and even go out to against the land of Babylon. What happens in the book of Revelation when the scroll is open? Its ultimate target is what? Babylon, the whore of Babylon, Revelation 17 and 18. Does this sound similar? Yes, because what you should be understanding in the book of Revelation is this, that God has commissioned a flying scroll. His word has gone forth. And ultimately, it has gone forth in history to land in the hand of his son, who will finish what God decreed here. And that's what Zechariah saw. That's what Zechariah saw. This scroll will finish the job. This scroll will win. And it reminds us that the word of God, it isn't just ideas. The word of God is the truth. It is reality, and it's what makes reality, and it's judgment and creation. It is authoritative and powerful, and therefore, we face a reality in ourselves. This is the accountability we have. And either this word, as Zechariah says, will purify you because it is so holy And because it requires and reminds us that if we are to enter the promises of God, we must be holy or it'll purge you out because you're not part of God's people and you have no place in his promises. And what we must remember is this is the flying scroll of God. This is our accountability. And we need to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, remind us entrench on our minds what Zechariah has depicted and what you revealed to your servant in one evening, that the word of God is this flying scroll, flying throughout history, judging, holy, accountable, 
and that one day it will fly into the hands of the Savior, who will unleash judgment, and there will be great purging, so that none of the wicked ever will remain, not even a trace of them, not even the evidence of them. And that is your glory. But therefore, then, may we be those who tremble before your word, those who are of the elect and of believers, and always come before it, knowing that you hold us accountable to every detail, and may our lives more and more conform to it with all our heart. In your name we pray. Amen.